Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say, I'm, you know, Food in Cuba has been such a, a great book to read for a million reasons, but also because you academic writing can be so difficult, as we all know, and you really create characters and scenes and like you draw the reader in and you do that that work to bring the reader into a place where they can really engage with what you're saying. And I just wanted to say thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for saying that. That's so nice to hear. It was That was one of my goals with this book was to be able to have non-academic people feel that they could be pulled into the book and, and get a lot out of it, even if they don't care at all about the theory <laughs> or the academic concepts. Right, right. No, it. you really do a great job. And I've been reading so much academic work because I'm working on my own book. Um, and I've had to read so many books about, you know, meat that are just very, very dry. <laughs> and I'm like, just give me something. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yes. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in a relatively small town in Wisconsin. Um, so I'm from the Midwest um, and I lived in town, but it was kind of a rural community. Um, so like a lot of farmers in the area. Um, and in my household, we ate what I thought of and probably still think of as like standard American lower middle to middle class fare. Um, so like for lunches, we would have Kraft mac and cheese grilled cheese sandwiches with Campbell's tomato soup, um, ham and cheese sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, you know, my dad always made lunches cause he was, he worked nights and he was at home with me during the day. Um, so he would always include like carrot slices and apple slices next to those things to like have a little variety. Um, and dinners we would have like probably more traditional Midwestern stuff. So like, I don't know if you know about tater tot hot dish or hot dish. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So it's just basically <laughs> just like cans of a bunch of stuff poured together into a casserole dish. And then you put tater tots on top of it and cheese and bake it. Um, so it's like really bad for you, um, but it's pretty delicious. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, we would have stuff like that. And um, I remember both my parents making fried chicken. They made it in different ways. My dad would make a beef stew. Um, we would have tuna casserole, a lot of casseroles, <laughs> um, spaghetti with bolognese sauce. Um, and, you know, and we mostly ate at home. We didn't really go out to eat very much. Um, and when we did, it was like to the same three or four local restaurants. Um, and yeah, that was, that was basically what I ate growing up. I love hearing about casseroles because I don't, I didn't grow, I grew up on Long Island. So it was, you know, more I, as I, Irish, Italian uh, like Greek people, like all sorts of, and so I didn't grow up with the casserole. So I'm always like, well, big ZD is the closest thing I understand <laughs> to being a casserole, but I love to hear about them because it's like this fascinating world that I never, I never got to experience. <laughs> 
but what made you interested in food as an area of study? Yeah, well, so it's something that has been kind of always a part of my life. So like I said, I grew up in a town that, um, although we lived in town, it was surrounded by rural farming communities. And like, for instance, there on the local news every night, there's a farm and agricultural report. And it was common for people to be talking about things like the price price of milk or like the price that a farmer could get for selling milk and the price of a gallon of milk in a store. or for people to talk about like, you know, how, how is the corn crop doing this year? Is it too short or too high? Um, Are, you know, is there going to be a flood that's going to ruin the crop? Um, So those kinds of conversations and that kind of thinking was always like part of my life growing up. Um, And like, although we lived in a town, we, like, for instance, I purchased my, well, my parents bought my clothes when I was a kid at a store that also sold tractors. Oh, wow. Um, So that just (laughs) like an idea of how like farming was like an integral part of my life. And then also my mother and my grandmother were really into gardening. Uh, My grandmother gardened for subsistence. So she was like hardcore about making sure that she, um, you know, took care of her garden all summer long so that she could have enough food to last her through the winter. Um, And, you know, I experienced helping her a little bit with the garden. Like, I, you know, I wasn't like that active in it, but (laughs) sort of thinking about connections between food cultivation and what we eat. Um, And so I, I also, I became interested in thinking about it more intellectually, um, kind of more of as a personal interest. Like I started reading these food books that were coming out in the 2000s. Um, So books by Michael Pollan, um, his book Omnivore's Dilemma was really influential for me. Um, This book called Animal Vegetable Miracle um, was also really influential. I also started reading chef's biographies at the time. Um, so I was particularly interested in women chefs and how women were sort of breaking into this masculine space, um, to sort of take, take over in a a different way. Um, and so I, I was, it, it wasn't really until I started graduate school that I realized that these things that I was personally interested in and passionate about could be the thing that I studied for my doctoral work. Um, And once that all clicked together, I was like, oh, I definitely, I want to pursue a PhD and I want to study food and study how people um, sort of integrate food into their lives. Um, But then also I was really interested in food access and food inequality. Um, So this was, so my, there were times when I was growing up when my family um, went through periods where we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and I can remember, like, I remember my dad, sometimes we would have no money and he would, um, go to the change pile and count the, you know, count out coins. And then, um, we would go to like the day old bread store and buy, you could buy a loaf of bread there for like 50 cents or 25 cents. 
and then go somewhere else and buy like a pack of bologna. And he, you know, he knew where you could find a pack of bologna for like a dollar, a dollar 25. Um, and that would be our household's lunch for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as a kid, I was like, that was just kind of a normal thing. And it wasn't yeah. until I got older that I was like, oh, wow, that was, um, that was kind of intense that that's food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I was always really impressed with like how resourceful my dad was and mm-hmm. in sort of getting it together and making sure we had something to eat. Um, so though, that's the kind of question that I became interested in studying. Right. And, you know, your writing really balances the frustrations of various food systems, but also that joy that people need to take in food in order to have a full life. And, you know, I noticed in your Twitter bio, you identify as a foodie, like how do you personally balance your, you know, that need for personal pleasure in food, that joy in food and the way food has such a strong political and economic um, status and and role? Yeah, I mean, I think, one thing that I've found in my own life and it with the families that I've worked with in Cuba and um, the families that I'm now working with in Los Angeles is that um, food across those settings is really important for people to connect with other people. So to connect with their family, whether that's, you know, their immediate family, people who live in their household um, or to connect with uh their ancestors, their grandparents, great grandparents, to connect with what how they understand their ethnicity, their race, their nationality. And so what I argue in basically all of my work is that food is never just about caloric intake and nutrients, but it's always inflected with some kind of social and cultural meaning and importance. Um, And so for me, I understand that the ways that I connect to food are, so food's political role is about my ability to be able to access the food that I connect to in this social way. Um, And so, you know, I take a lot of pleasure in like making my grandmother's fried chicken recipe, but also making slight variations on it to, you know, to make it my own and to make it more suited to the taste of my family. Um, So this is the kind of thing that like, I feel like balances this food as political and my identity as a foodie. Um, I'll also say that one of the things we did growing up was um, I, although I lived in this small town, every once in a while, like, I don't know, maybe four or five times a year, we would uh, go into Minneapolis, which was the closest city. Um, And for my family, one of the really important things we did on those trips was to eat at um, restaurants that that had foods that were unavailable in my town. Um, So we would eat at Greek restaurants, Ethiopian restaurants, um, all kinds of Asian restaurants that we didn't have, like Korean, Vietnamese, Thai. Um, And for me, food then became this sort of vehicle of global connection of, um, you know, cross-cultural appreciation of other kinds of 
ways of eating other flavors on your palate that you don't experience in the food that you eat every day. Um, and so that's part of my foodiness is also, <laughs> I'm always seeking out delicious food and delicious flavors, um, no matter where those things come from. Right. Right. And, you know, you have a master's in public health, I read, as well as your PhD in anthropology. And, you know, this gives you that what you were just expressing such a unique and multifaceted perspective on food and, you know, in food media in particular, we often shy away from discussing nutrition, despite how, you know, it's very significant when we're also discussing access, discussing systemic discrimination, um, food system inequities, you know, because, there's this concern that if we talk about anything about nutrition, we're going to get into fat phobia. We're going to get into classism. And I, I've been struggling myself with, you know, figuring out how do I address these sorts of things that are so significant without, you know, falling into getting criticism on that level. And I mean, I think it's possible, obviously, but you know, how in your work have you been able to address nutrition as an important matter around social equity and food when health is so personal for people? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I appreciate your vulnerability <laughs> in talking about how, you know, it does, it opens you up to a particular kind of scrutiny and, you know, like, so, okay, people think of nutrition as, um, as like a quote unquote real science, um, but nutrition science actually is something that's constantly evolving and constantly changing. And we now can, you know, if we look back in the past just a little bit, we can see how wrong we were just like 20, 30, 50 years ago about food consumption. And we can also see how much the food industry has influenced nutrition as a, you know, as a science, right? So um, we have early nutritional studies that were funded, paid for by um, food lobbying groups. So they might've been paid for by the dairy industry. They might've been paid for by meat producers. Um, and that those early studies really, really influenced the ways that we went for nutrition. Um, so like something as simple as um, thinking that red meat consumption would cause heart disease. Um, that's, that's something that's being torn apart right now. And it's something that we're starting to see that the science really was not very clear on. Um, or dietary fat consumption, for instance. And so I'm interested, I think about nutrition as something that is um, ever evolving and changing and that we're learning more and more about it and that it's actually really important to understand the settings of people's everyday lives and what people are actually consuming and how that contributes sort of back to our understanding of nutrition. Um, so, I think like it's it's just cool or 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 tragic, depending on how you think of it, to see that um, nutrition is actually open to scrutiny. Right. It's not this like you know you must follow the food pyramid or the food plate, <laughs> whatever the USDA is telling people now. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also really important to have to be empowered with a little bit of basic nutritional knowledge. Um, so to understand 
what our basic macronutrients are. So what is a protein? What is a fat? What is a carbohydrate? Um, And to think about the building blocks that we need in order to uh, function on a daily basis. So, you know, I will, if I'm like sort of assessing what someone's eating, I might make note that like, you know, this, someone's eating a lot of carbohydrates and they're maybe not getting enough dietary fat or protein in their everyday food consumption. Um, And that, those are the kinds of things that then I can connect that with um, social equity issues and access issues related to health. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's most of us know that eating refined carbohydrates is the uh, cheapest and quickest way to fill ourselves up. Mm -hmm. Um, But often refined carbohydrates don't provide us with the, all of the nutrients that we need for basic functioning from, you know, anything from the ability to use our muscles to the ability to use our brains properly. Um, so when I start to see families that have, that are unable to purchase the variety of macronutrients that they really should be having in order to be able to function, then I can talk about how the the structural systems that are in place that are making it so that they can only afford to subsist on and, you know, barely function on the cheapest foods that are available in our system. Um, And that is linked to a whole long history of um, lobbying in our federal government, the way that our our farming and price supports are structured, um, as well as what people are calling food apartheid. So a separate and unequal type of food system. Right. And that's such a great, that's so great (laughs) to have that. Um, And, you know, to kind of switch gears toward your books, um, specifically Food in Cuba, specifically Food and Identity in the Caribbean, which you edited. Um, To start off, why did you choose to focus on Cuba as the site of your field research? Yeah. So the, so there's like two prongs to the answer to that. One is personal and one is academic. Right. Um, the, the personal part is that Cuba was the first place that I traveled to outside of the United States. Um, I traveled there the summer after I graduated from high school. Um, and I was, I went there I had become sort of enamored with socialism and the idea that this was a wonderful place where people had access to free education and low cost housing and, and, you know, free food. Um, And then when I got there and I started talking to people, people were like, no, it's terrible (laughs) here. We wish we were in the United States um, where, you know, you have these other opportunities. Um, And I, as a young person was just very perplexed by that. I was, it, it was confusing to me. (laughs) And so I kept sort of pursuing this question of like, why people who um, have access to all of these things that I didn't have free access to um, 
and they why they focused on the difficulties and the complexities of those systems and why they sort of wished that they had something else. Um, so that's like the personal pull for why I kept doing the research. Um, and then the, the academic reason is that it's fascinating that Cuba is the only place in the world that still has a food rationing system for every single um, resident. Mm -hmm. So they provide a basic amount of food for everyone, regardless of your status as a wage earner, you don't have to qualify for food stamps or EBT. You just are given basic, what you would basic, what, what we would call a basic bread basket. Right. Um, and so that in and of itself is an interesting question. It's the only place that still does that. And it, it does a lot to prevent um, severe forms of malnutrition and hunger. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was what drew me to doing research there. Right. And, you know, uh, you've also worked more broadly on food and identity in the Caribbean and Latin America. Like why, why are these places of particular interest? I know you're going to be coming to Puerto Rico soon too. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think I'm interested in particular sets of colonial histories that have impacted the region. Um, so a shared problem of being the location of extractive capitalism for European colonialism and then for American occupation. Um, and how, you know, that's a very long history, but that yeah. long history has a really uh, complicated and ongoing impact on basic things like food access across the region. Um, so that that shared uh, historical foundation has led to um, both these complexities in food access, but also similarities in terms of cuisine. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm fascinated by little nuances between the islands of different different things that have become like the traditional dish or more widely consumed um even if it's something as you know just the different way that like a plantain is prepared um so so it's that kind of cross between the foodie in me mm -hmm. and the uh, the social scientist in me is what yeah. makes me interested in the whole region no, and that's so it's yeah, it, the, I love the the idea of looking at it more gastronomically and those impacts too, obviously. Um, and in reading your book, Food in Cuba, The Pursuit of a Decent Meal, you know, it gave me so much to think about because I had this like, <laughs> of course, like so many other people on the left, this like idealized, you know, vision of what Cuba you know, what eating and, and being in Cuba would be like. And, you know, um, living in Puerto Rico, like uh, we, there's so much writing about, you know, 85% of food is imported. And like, I've done this writing too, but <laughs> before I lived here. And then when I live here, I experience like so much abundance of foods and like just so much sharing and generosity in food. And like, 
you know, whether people have just their own garden or they have a farm, like there's just, there's so much food here grown here. <laughs> like there is, it's just really it, that contrast between like the official kind of line and the actual lived experience has been such an interesting thing to, to understand. And, you know, because Cuba, as you wrote, is so dependent on imports. And I didn't, I really was shocked by that. <laughs> and, you know, because, um, yeah, I just, I thought it would be this, a similar sort of situation to Puerto Rico, at least in terms of, of smaller farming. Um, but, you know, because there's that poem from the 1800s, Two Wings of the Same Bird. Um, so, you know, can you explain sort of why Cuba has been dependent on imports and, and what agriculture does look like? Um, on the island, like, and how, how, what that shapes what people eat, like, and is, what is agriculture like, is there agriculture outside of state control, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's, what, what is it, two, two wings on the same bird? Is of the same bird, yeah. Translated, okay. Two yeah. wings of the same bird. I think it's, it's true. There's so many similarities between Puerto Rico and and Cuba. Um, and one thing, right, was that they both started as these um, sugar growing uh, plantation societies based on chattel slavery um, of enslaved Africans. Um, and that, you know, they were, they were seen as places that were producing sugar, producing sweetness for the rest of the world. Um, then, sugar uh, brought a lot of money. So it, it made sense to build an economic system off of sugar, but also that whole economic system was supported by free enslaved labor. Um, so Cuba continued to heavily produce sugar basically all the way until really now. Um, mm -hmm. So they were, they, uh, between the late 1800s and the 1950s, Cuba had uh, sort of preferential trade agreements with the United States. They produced a lot of sugar that was exported to the United States. Um, and then when Cuba became socialist and the United States embargoed trade, shortly thereafter, they um, made geopolitical agreements with the Soviet Union and so they were able to preferentially trade sugar for um, all kinds of goods, uh, anywhere from weapons to canned foods. Um, and when I say preferential trade, I mean that the Soviet Union gave them a better price than the, the price on the market. Um, so that reliance, um, because the early socialist system was built on that reliance, and it, and it really was not until the collapse of the Soviet Union or a little bit in the 1980s that Cuba started to try to develop a more robust agricultural system. Um, people in Cuba and elsewhere say that it's really because of that reliance that Cuba's uh, domestic agricultural production system was never fully developed. Um, and then the problem was that when they tried to develop the agricultural system, it was the 1990s. It was their worst, yeah. possibly now their second worst um, economic crisis. 
Um, and so there were no inputs, there was no fuel, there were not um, tractors there. It was too difficult to develop domestic agriculture at that time. Um, and then it uh, over like between the 1990s and now there have been all kinds of efforts to increase domestic agricultural production. And a lot of those things have happened, um, but they haven't happened maybe in the way that we might imagine. Um, so one example is that Cuba has, has um, increased their ability to process food on the island. So instead of importing fully processed goods, they import raw goods and then process mm -hmm. them themselves, right? So they, instead of buying pasta, they buy wheat and they turn it into pasta. Or instead of buying oil, they buy soy and they process it into oil. Um, th so that's been a huge form of development, domestic development that they've done for themselves to decrease the cost of their imports. Um, and then they've also developed domestic um, poultry industry. So now there's more, more of the eggs that are consumed in Cuba come from Cuban chickens and more of the chicken that's consumed in Cuba comes from Cuba, but it's still, that meat is still heavily imported actually. Um, so when, when the, they give you the numbers of what the imports are, it, in Cuba it does fluctuate anywhere between 65% to 85% of what's consumed on the island is imported. Um, and that's mostly staples and meat. Yeah. Um, but all the foods that we think of as these sort of tropical abundance foods like fruit, um, certain vegetables, uh, tubers, which are viandas, really very yeah. important to Cuban cuisine, those are produced domestically. Yeah. Um, so it those are also abundant. So when people talk about there is no food in Cuba or there's not enough food, they're not talking about a lack of mangoes or <laughs> a lack right. of plantains. Right. Um, those, those things um, are all over the place. They're seasonal though. So right. You yeah. can't get, you can't get a mango when it's not mango season, of course. Um, or you can't get an avocado if it's not avocado season. Um, but all those kinds of things are produced domestically. Um, but when you, so they're not, the state agricultural production system has fluctuated a lot over the last 20 to 30 years in terms of whether, whether farmers are allowed to, um, so farmers have to sell a certain amount of food to the government. And then once they meet that quota, Sometimes at different historical periods, they're allowed to sell that food directly to consumers or other times they've sort of clamped down on this and not allowed farmers to sell directly to consumers. Um, and part of that has to do with um, whether or not the farmers are asking, whether or not the farmers are using a supply and demand um, sale system and then the price of those foods goes up. So Cuba systematically wants to prevent this sort of capitalist forms of price inflation. Usually uh, with selling surplus agricultural products, that doesn't happen because everything is so seasonal. So mm -hmm. 
it's hard if you if you're selling avocados during avocado season on a supply and demand price system, they're not going to be overpriced. Right. Um, but if you've got the first avocados of the season or the last avocados of the season, you can get really good prices for those if you're using supply and demand system. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So they've, and then they've done all kinds of other things to sort of uh, shift how people are able to access food um, depending on the, you know, the political moment that mm-hmm. Cuba's in and depending on the, the abundance of food that they're able to buy on the, on the global market. Right. Right. Interesting. (laughs) Sorry. That might be like, no, I loved it. No, I love it. No, that's really useful to understand. No, because um, (laughs) I was just curious reading, reading your book where I was, you know, I guess I was curious about the vianda. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, because so yeah, yeah, viandas are generally produced domestically, um, uh, but I there are a lot of fluctuations seasonally that people find really frustrating. Yeah. Um. So you know, there will be periods where there's only one, like there's only malanga, right. and you can't find any <laughs> other kind of tuber. Um, and people get really frustrated yeah. or like, um, potatoes and sweet potatoes are kind of, um, they're kind of luxury good. They're a little bit more rare. And sometimes the season of potato and sweet potato is very short and people get very few, um, in the year and they find that really frustrating. Oh, wow. Wow. It's interesting because you, yuca, uh, is definitely like all year here in Puerto Rico. <laughs> uh, like there, there are things that are seasonal, but also it's funny because there's so many, obviously probably the same in Cuba. I'm not as familiar with the terrain, but the microclimates here mean that like one farmer who's a little higher up will have kale for only a little while. And then one farmer who's more in a, another microclimate will have kale all year. And like, it's just, you have to know where to go to get the, the which, which thing that is all, you know, it's just really interesting how the, the microclimates um, create that sort of situation of like, uh, this might be overabundant all year, but this thing you're going to have to grab like one week that it's available. Um, and people don't think of the tropics as having really climates. They're just like pineapple and mango all the time. (laughs) Yeah. There's definitely microclimates and seasons in Cuba as well. Yeah. Um, and there's also been, uh, uh, there's been climate change effects on agriculture. So in, in Eastern Cuba, where I work, it's been in a drought for like the last five or six years, although recently there was more rain. So that drought really did affect um, agricultural production because there aren't, there are not robust systems of irrigation because there hasn't historically been drought. Right. So it it has a really big impact. No, for sure. Um, And I wanted to ask, because I think it's such a significant framework um, about, you know, the decent meal. Like, can you explain that? concept a little bit to people who haven't read your book yet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I'll tell a story, I guess. Um, one of the families that I was trying to work with, um, early in my research was explaining to me 
they kept saying there is no food in Cuba. We don't have any food. We don't eat food in this household. <laughs> and I was visiting them and I was like, I was seeing them eating food. So I was like, you know, I'm confused. Why are you telling me there's no food when you're literally eating food? Um, and they were, the, the woman from the household was like, no, 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 this isn't food. Like I'm eating spaghetti with some marinara sauce on it to fill myself up, but that's not food. Or I just made, like, I have some rice that I just put a fried egg on top of, but that's not a meal. And so it took, uh, you know, a while for people to explain this to me over and over again, that when they said they didn't need any food or they hadn't had food in a long time, what they meant was that they hadn't had what they consider to be a decent meal or right. real food. So that for them means a full meal that has all of the categories of different nutrients and different types of food that they're that they believe they're supposed to have based on historical, familial, social understandings of what is appropriate to eat. Right. So in the case of where I work, a decent meal would always have rice, beans, the beans can be any kind of beans, um, some kind of meat, um, preferably a lot of meat. Tubers <laughs> 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 or viandas um, uh, prepared in any way, um, mm -hmm. but they just need to be present. And then some kind of salad or vegetable, it, you know, could just be like a couple tomatoes, some avocado, a little bit of lettuce, um, whatever, but it has, has to have some sort of vegetable accompaniment. Um, and then, you know, to eat all of those things in a particular way and make sure that you, you know, they're sort of plated in this particular way and not, um, so in Cuba, when people eat not real food they call it sancocho which mm, here yeah means like dog food it means like pig slop um so your food should not look like sancocho oh wow <laughs> i know that's very <laughs> different from other people <laughs> yeah <laughs> no that's so interesting yeah yeah so so that be, it became really important for me to understand that because if i didn't understand what it was that people thought of as a real meal or a decent meal, I might have just taken them in the literal sense that like there was no food or they hadn't eaten any food. And I might have assumed that, you know, they were um, starving or having nutritional deficiencies. Um, they might be having nutritional defi deficiencies, but they're definitely not starving. So there's, there is this other stuff to eat that's right. available, but they just don't consider that to be real food. Right, right. Um, that's, you know, that is interesting, especially the Sancocho. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's so different from my like understanding of Sancocho as like this really hearty and like, like a sign of love, you know, that's interesting. Um, so what are you working on now? What's next for you in your in your work and research? Well, yeah, so I'm really excited about my next projects. Um, I'm doing two, I'm starting two new projects right now. Um, one is building off of the work that I've been doing in Los Angeles 
Um, and it'll be looking at um, families that used emergency food programming during the pandemic. Um, and after those programs have been taken away, wow. how those families are readjusting to having to purchase food when maybe their home economic situation hasn't changed, um, but the emergency food supply has gone away. So I'm just putting in, like getting the permissions to start doing the interviews for that work. Um, and I'll be doing that over the next couple of years. Um, and then I'm also gonna be starting a project that will be based in Puerto Rico, um, but will be multi-sided throughout the Caribbean, um, which will be looking at fish. Um, so local fish consumption and local artisan fisher people. Um, so one of the things that constantly comes up when I talk about my research in Cuba, audience members always ask, well, it's an island, it's surrounded by water, why don't they just eat more fish? <laughs> and there's multiple reasons for the answer to that question. Um, but I just really want to dig deeper into um, histories of fish consumption, culturally appropriate fish consumption, um, and then some of the really climate change and environmental impacts that have caused a reduction in the availability of edible fish um, in the region. Oh, that's so great. That's really fascinating. And that's going to, because it's true, people here are like, where's the seafood? And it's like, it's there. And, you know, there are a lot of chefs preparing like whole fish and everything like that's local. Um, and, you know, but they, they, people assume like a culture of just like abundant fish everywhere and shellfish and everything. And it's like, well, there's like, there are so many reasons why that is not the case, but it's one thing that's really interesting because I don't eat fish, but I eat oysters. And so like the local oysters here, it's a very interesting case of the microclimates in the ocean itself, where it's like in the, in the Southwest, the oysters are really small, but really good and like high salinity. And if you get them in the Northeast, they're bigger, but they taste to me terrible <laughs> because there's like no salinity and and it's just like oh it's just like the pure texture of an oyster oyster like it really needs a lot of pk and everything um so that's i'm going to be fascinated to watch what your work is in that um and today you're going to be the first person to get a new final question for these interviews <laughs> yes <laughs> um so i wanted to ask how do you define for yourself abundance abundance for me personally, abundance would mean never having to worry or, you know, fear that it's, it won't be there. Yeah. Um, so just always knowing that something is there. Right. Um, and so I think that could be applied to material things, but also like sentiments mm -hmm. or time, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which obviously time is not going to be abundant for most people. <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. This has been really great. Yeah, thanks. This has been great.